0: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, speaking with Sean Gonsalves. Sean, I think you might now be one of the most uh, recurring guests at this point on the show.
1: It's getting up there.
0: (laughs) Uh, You are the uh, Associate Director for Communications for uh, the Community Broadband Networks team here at ILSR.
1: Yes, and and you know what? It's so much easier to pronounce my title now. <laughs> or, not not, not to pronounce it's to say it. remember
0: it, it everything. Yeah. It's, not,
1: it, it's not a paragraph anymore. It's yeah. a concise description.
0: And today we're going to be talking mostly about the five year plans we're starting to see come out. You just dove into them a few nights ago. I think I'm I'm curious. Like what I want to talk about a few things before we get into that. But but were you did you just pick one up and you are like, wait a minute, like I gotta check this out. What's going on here? What what led you to want to read them all?
1: Actually, because I think I saw somewhere that Maine's plan and, and you know, we we, we cover Maine quite a bit and, and think highly of what they're trying to do there in Maine and their approach. And so you go down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. And, you know, I went to the uh, NTIA website and started seeing all of these five-year action plans popping up. And I said, you know, we should probably look at each one of these.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Better you than me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then also there's the issue of what they call it isn't exactly intuitive at least the way my brain works
0: we're going to talk about bead here all right so 42 and a half billion dollars probably all the listeners know about this now
1: right I'm assuming folks know this by now but 42 and in the bead program the largest single uh federal investment in, uh in U.S history as it relates to broadband and in order to unlock those funds each state in U.S territory uh gets a portion of that pie and so in order to unlock those funds of course you have to file uh these um these five-year action plans, and initial proposals. Now, the way my brain works, the word initial means the first thing.
0: Right, but that would be wrong.
1: The word five-year plan seems to, at least to my brain, say that's like the final thing but it's exactly i had that exactly backwards it's, well the
0: last it's, thing to be clear is final at least the final right. proposal so they got to right. do they have to do like three pieces of paperwork relating to uh this broadband plan they also have to do a digital equity plan as mm-hmm. well
1: which some states have chose to to combine into one document which is probably smart because the, you know the, the those two things work hand in hand of course
0: right so the states should be mostly done with their five-year plans many have submitted them they're mm-hmm. working on the initial plans. A few are very close or have submitted it already, but mm-hmm. they have until the end of the year to do that. And then at the end of next year, middle of next year is when we'll start to see those uh, those final plans finalized and, and put into the NTIA. Exactly. Uh, okay. So a couple other things before we dig into what you found and in, in looking into these five-year plans. And uh, by the way, like, I mean, I think these are th- absolutely things that people should be reading to get a sense of, uh, this is an official document. The uh, the state has put time into it, has looked for public comment. There are still times, it, it, there is still time. If you're in many places that may not be finalized yet. In other places, you might be able to correct something in the initial plan if you don't like right. the way they're approaching it in the five-year plan. So, uh, right. There are still places to go. If you feel that you, the state is ignoring the comments of you or your group, uh, you can talk to the the FPO, the federal program officer from NTIA. And if you Google that, you could find uh, pretty easily who that is. Reach out to that person on email and say, hey, like I've been telling the state this and they won't listen to me or something like that. And the FPO can uh, try to figure out what's going on there because states are supposed to be taking feedback. Big time. Yeah. All right. So, uh Sean. Uh, Yesterday, we did the history of LTE on the Connect This Show. Did you watch that?
1: Man, I was so busy deep into reading <laughs> these plans that I haven't caught up with that yet.
0: <laughs> That's what I thought. I think probably a lot of people listening are in a similar position. You know, that that show, the Connect This show, uh, that is a show that, um, you know, we have we have some fun with. And usually it's about the news and, and current news. But uh, the one we did yesterday should be pretty timeless and uh, encourage people to go back if they want to check out connectthisshow.com. Um, uh, you may not see it up there immediately. Uh, but if you go to communitynets.org and look at the most recent Connect This Show on the front page in the mm-hmm. center column, uh, you'll see a link to it. Uh, I just say that because Rise Out and Rise is the one that usually updates that stuff. That's so, right. <laughs> uh, it'll be up on Monday. Actually, by the time people are listening to this. It should be up there. But at any rate, a history of wireless LTE and, and that sort of thing. It is, uh, is a good discussion. It's a good history and just good like walking down memory lane a little bit of like some of the, the early wireless stuff. It's kind of cool. So we did that. Um, and then we got a there's a few other things that have popped up. One is you wrote a story about uh, Loveland Pulse Network, a uh, right. network that, uh, you know, I don't want to I'm not going to spoil anything, but uh, we have decided um, and almost certainly now to do our fall retreat in the Front Range in Colorado. And we're hopefully going to visit Loveland Pulse, visit Longmont, visit Fort Collins to see their networks. But Loveland Pulse has just announced that they are expanding their fiber network to a uh, smaller community nearby. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, that's uh, um, the town actually of Timnath. Um, I think it's Timnath. Uh, Tim, not Timnath, but Timnath. I've never been right, there.
0: T i m n a t h Tim. Yes. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, which is about ten miles uh north of of Loveland, and um, and they've been kind of kicking the tires around, you know, around the municipal broadband network, and so they had been looking at Fort Collins and and um the Pulse Network in in Loveland and they reached a uh, a memorandum of understanding which essentially is an agreement between the two towns so that uh pulse is going to be expanding they're bringing a um fiber uh ubiquitous fiber into the town of Timnath which i believe has about what 7800 folks that i think that live in town there uh, it's a pretty residential community got a chance to speak to the town planner there they're extremely excited and 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 frankly you know he was pretty candid in saying that a a big driver of this is that because of all of these wonderful networks that are popping up in the front range region, frankly, they were very concerned that they were going to be left behind, especially as it related to, you know, attracting residents. I mean, that's, that's an, an extremely appealing piece of infrastructure, uh, particularly in that part of the country where you've got such fabulous, you know, fiber networks nearby. Um, And, and in fact, you know, there's one, so this is Laramie County um, that, both loveland and tim nather and there was another county who's uh there's another town within that county whose name i can't remember and they were talking about how they didn't want to be like that town where where they were hearing uh quite a bit that folks were not moving at least were leaving that town and not moving into that town specifically because the internet connectivity there just wasn't cutting you know just wasn't cutting it
0: yeah yeah that's not surprising to hear um I know that Loveland has also had a commitment to expanding some of the unincorporated areas, I think, right. around Larimer, working with the county there. And uh, and that's that's what we want to see. I think there's a lot of excitement around um making sure that uh when there's public dollars available, if we can use it for public network expansion to meet these needs in the long term, that's awesome.
1: It is. And it, you know, and we, you know, we hear a lot about public private partnerships, but so this is sort of like a public public partnership. Um mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we've seen a lot of these in Iowa. You know, Cedar Falls has done a lot of this. Reedsburg uh, in Wisconsin has done this quite a bit. Um, there's a number of networks um, that have that have done this. I think Chattanooga would have done it if the state hadn't made it illegal. And by the state, I mean, AT&T and Comcast.
1: <laughs> That's right. And when. You know? you-
0: it's ridiculous. There are still people like outside Chattanooga who don't have like a decent internet access and the state would rather, you know, pay some private company like a bunch of money uh, rather than changing the law to allow Chattanooga to just extend that network a little bit at no cost <laughs> to the taxpayer. Like ridiculous, it's, but, it's, but
1: it uh, it really is a, a bizarre way of thinking. It's like you have one of the best municipal networks in best the country,
0: municipal best networks in the nation. Best, right, right, right. Like, exactly. Happening. Yeah. You know, <laughs>
1: and And it's like, yeah, let's just keep it in Chattanooga and everybody else just, you know, I don't.
0: Yeah. What's weird. I mean, like this gives you a sense of the state, right? Is that like the state is giving money to municipalities, right? Like I think Knoxville got some money to expand because Knoxville's building this massive municipal network that will be bigger than Chattanooga. Yeah, it'll be the biggest
1: in the country when it's finished.
0: And so they have like part of their territory, their electric territory is areas that are uh, deeply unserved. And so the state is willing to pay them money to help them make those connections because that is allowed. But the state cannot change this law from 1998 because Comcast and AT&T just got those lobbyists. They got it locked down. I remember, I mean, it was like maybe five or six years ago, maybe more, but I saw an article in the, the Chattanooga Times Free Press and uh it said that there was like 26 lobbyists from Comcast and AT&T in a room for a subcommittee vote. That was like five to four or five to three or something like that. Right. You got like eight committee members who are voting and they got three lobbyists from this one industry on each of them.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> yeah.
0: You kind of wonder, like, are they actually like pulling the puppet strings? Like, do they attach strings to like, <laughs> you know, like and they're like each orchestrating it above that person? <laughs> So yeah, I mean that's pretty wild. Um but um so I mean, that's exciting I think for for Timnith, I think I'm hopeful to we'll see more of that in Colorado. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean it 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 feels like there's you know there's been over the past couple of years of course they rolled back the the restrictions that they or th- that they had in Colorado where you had to, you know, have this referendum vote, you know, after like, you know, <laughs> half the cities and towns have already sort of opted out of the law that um that that calls for that and now they've gotten rid of that but it feels like Colorado was turning into like this hotbed of municipal broadband networks. I think word spreading. And then of course, you've got those, you know, great networks there in the front range region that I think are, are, are really, you know, blazing a trail for, for, for other communities, certainly for Tim Nath. And then, you know, so much a part of like all of this is, is obviously, you know, about competition and, and affordability. And man, you look at the prices that pulse offers their subscribers, $45 a month for their most popular or actually, their most popular package is the symmetrical gig, seventy five dollars a month. Yeah, that's a good price. Forty forty five bucks for you know um, their starter package. It's it's those kind of things that not just people like me, but that make, that make people go, man. When I'm when I'm thinking about moving to a community, I'm checking for things like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things I find interesting too is there is this claim from the uh, big cable and telephone companies that if you know states like Colorado made it easier. For municipalities to build their networks that we would see less private investment because for the private companies, Wall Street would view it as a less hospitable investment, like they might be less likely to be able to make their money back, but we 're also seeing announcements from Google Fiber we see private companies doing public private partnerships in Colorado, right we see everything in Colorado like it's it's almost like you know the state removes barriers to investment and actually like encourages investment, and then you get investment you know like right. so I mean like you know I, I just bring that up to say like these these lies have been saying this stuff forever, right? I mean, they've been saying like, oh, like we need to restrict this to like to make it safer for the taxpayers. And then like in states like Utah, where they pass the laws that are supposed to be protecting taxpayers, the taxpayers are put at greater risk because like what they're doing is they're increasing the risk of the project communities still need a high quality internet network it's just that now there's higher risk because of the law that is was passed by comcast and at&t or charter or whoever so yeah i mean like there's uh there's a lot of garbage out there but it's good to see that you know our analyses are standing up still 10 12 years after we've made them and uh so a little pat on the back for ourselves there
1: <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> let's talk about the five-year plans so okay you dug into the five-year plans where do you want to start
1: well let's start with where i started which is with maine And honestly, there weren't really a lot of surprises in their five-year plan because we follow what's going on in Maine pretty closely. And we know that Maine has made public broadband or investing in um, locally controlled, publicly owned infrastructure as being like a centerpiece of their statewide plan to, to get folks connected. A lot of that, of course, has to do with Maine is such a rural state. And there's a lot of areas in Maine that are not particularly attractive to the big guys. And so, they, you know, in, in some ways, that kind of drives them to look for alternative models.
0: There's a lot of interesting things happening in Maine. I mean, not just that sort of individual municipal network, but they've created this structure, the the broadband utility district exactly. to make it easier for communities to work together. At the same time, like Consolidated, you know, the company that's now called Consolidated, the incumbent telephone company for a majority of that whole region of the of upper New England, um, they have done more on public-private partnerships after... Um, um, you know, the, it was before it was consolidated. They, um, the previous companies, Verizon and Fairpoint, they were awful. Uh, and, you know, I think mean, consolidated was the same people effectively, but they've actually stepped up the game quite a bit, but Prior to that, there that, that was DSL that was rotting. It's bad. And, and they were not even willing to do partnerships. At least now, Consolidated is willing to do that. And I think a lot of that is because of uh, people in Maine that really came together to like create the Maine Broadband Coalition. You know, you got Peggy Schaefer. So you obviously have uh, such great uh, ISPs up there willing to partner. You got like uh, you got Pioneer Broadband, uh, GWI, long been I mean, GWI's work is, I think, just terrific on this stuff. Uh, there's multiple others that I'm missing uh, in, my, in my brain right now. Uh, but there's just this great co- ecosystem that's been developed up there. And exactly. so uh, exactly. it's great. And AARP has been deeply involved. I mean, like there's all kinds of folks that have pulled together up there.
1: Exactly, and you know one other thing, and we knew about this, but one other thing that the that the plan does include, which is that the fact that, that that Maine has actually redefined the meaning of broadband, which is you know, so the you know the standard in terms of what is you know they're looking to get to of the of the the hundred over twenty, Maine says no, we want symmetrical uh hundred megabits uh, per second service, um, and so they're they're integrating that uh into the, into their plan. So there's just a lot of action and exciting things. And I feel like Maine is well poised to to really capitalize on this moment. And um whereas other states it feels like in it, even in looking at their plans that it it it's it's even the ones that look kind of beautiful are kind of like it's it's kind of like the same old, same old kind of thing with a lot of the you know, the obligatory rhetoric around you know how important it is to close the digital divide and how they're gonna, you know, maximize the federal funds and 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 all of these kind of things so um
0: there's only so much you can say about permitting right like (laughs) that's right
1: there's only so much you can say about permitting i mean so that i mean that that's certainly a pattern that i've seen is that you know a lot of the language you know it varies from state to state but they're pretty much all making the same points about what the goals and the vision uh include um um you know obviously you know a big part of that are, are the the digital inclusion initiatives that are that are in each of these plans um but what i find to be most interesting is the sort of the contrast between states like maine and vermont we should mention they're, they've also filed their five-year action plan and they're moving like gangbusters there And vermont very much like maine is also a state that is sort of centered community broadband uh model um at the you know is at the center of of their uh of their plans and then you've got, you know, the 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 string of states, 17 by our account, that have these preemption laws that that really fly in the face of the plain language of the of the infrastructure bill, which says that you've got to give municipalities and political subdivisions access to these B dollars. And there's 17 states that have some form of restriction, in some cases that outright ban municipal broadband. Um and it's so I was interested in, and this is the part that I've been, uh, you know, spending my time on in the last few days, and in looking specifically in these plans of in, in those states of how they're wrestling with the the their preemption laws in in the face of bead.
0: Yeah, if people if people dig back into their podcast feed episode 498 where I interviewed Nancy Werner, who was at Natoa at the time, the National Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors. Uh, we talked about that and uh and talked about kind of what options were open to NTIA. And I think she made a strong case that NTIA is playing its hand poorly. Um, you know I think NTIA has a bunch of folks who are under a lot of pressure uh, but I think they could be pushing harder on states um, you know I don't think it's realistic I've, I've said this before and it undermines what you and I would like to see happen right we want to see NTIA play hardball
1: right and be like we're not giving you your funds unless you remove these barriers right
0: like I mean like the, the election could be decided by like Georgia or North Carolina or Wisconsin and like each of those has some barriers and um, well Georgia's is really light it's not really related to broadband but like you it's hard to imagine the Biden administration telling North Carolina, you're not getting broadband funds, you know, like in an election year. Right. <laughs> right. Or we're going to delay it. Right. Like it's just. Um politically that's not how the world works. So, but nonetheless, I do feel like NTIA could be pushing harder back on some of this. Uh it's, it's not that it is a the case they're not doing nothing. They're doing what we had suggested, one of the things, which is states are supposed to document this and track, right. you know, all of this stuff. So
1: you're right. I mean, like in the best of all possible worlds, in some ways, you know, I fantasize about NTIA really saying, Look, you gotta follow the law. This is, you know, you've got to you've got to deal with this, um, or you're not gonna get the funds. On the other hand, I do think that the, ver- the very fact that, that NTIA is requiring those states, though, to explain themselves, and, and specifically, you know, in different ways, like not only to identify what those barriers are, but to also explain how that barrier may or, you know, is is affecting the applic- uh, grant applications and, and potentially if uh, applicants are denied, how that plays into it. And so I think that exercise has produce some interesting results in some in some states that have like North Carolina and South Carolina that have these barriers, where I frankly was surprised at how candid those states broadband officers were in these plans in acknowledging those barriers and calling them for what they are and, and saying that they're real hindrances and they're real challenges. Um, and, and I don't know if it's North Carolina, South Carolina or both, but I think maybe either in one or both. They were suggesting that you know that they may very well suggest to the state legislature that that this should be dealt
0: with, yeah, and so I think it's important for people to have a sense if if people don't really have a good sense of how uh, the state is organized. Um, These plans are being developed by people who are career staff, you know, who um, have been working, uh, you know, for state government. My wife works for state government. Um, These are people who don't care about politics so much, right? Like they're not motivated by like, I mean, and personally they might have strong opinions, but like they usually are very professional and not bringing that to work. And so they don't want to get involved in something that is a political hot potato because what could happen to them is that their boss, who is also in many cases a non-political appointee, a career staffer, you know, will get grilled by a political appointee above them who, you know, a department ha- or a cabinet member or something like that. You know, a a head of the department and um, and that person, you know, uh, is going to be like, look, like we don't want to have this big fight. Don't piss off the legislature. You know, don't piss off the Republican leadership in Raleigh, who uh, is clearly bought and paid for by AT&T and Charter Spectrum. Um, You know, we don't want to. This is not where we want to have a big fight. And so for them to come out and to just be so clear that like these laws are, are, are hurting our ability to get everyone connected. I, you know we did not see that five years ago from from any state really you know because like the career folks felt like that was a line too far but now they clearly recognize that this is such an issue and this is this is such a barrier that they can't ignore it and so wow. we are in a much better place um because of that honesty i think now but it is pretty remarkable
1: I and, and that's what i mean i think we need to like acknowledge that that's the needle has moved pretty far on on that i mean granted it isn't you know the actual removal of some of these barriers in some of these states but to the extent that that the 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 folks who who are administering these programs are candidly acknowledging uh these barriers i think is a significant you know step forward
0: yeah so then in, in uh south carolina there was something else that was interesting though um when uh with uh, what we saw in the report uh which i think we didn't really expect
2: yeah which
1: was they were quoting actually people from you know, the listening sessions and stuff that they were having around the state. And, and to me, the quotes that they used in there really signifies that even in states that do have these barriers, like, like, and and I think this is true across the board, people get it. Like people understand that the connection between the lack of competition, the lack of choice and, and how that relates to prices, reliability and customer service and things of that nature And so I was trying to see if I could quickly find some of the quotes because they were really good. So they included, um, so South Carolina included some direct quotes that they were hearing as they were doing their listening sessions and building these plans. And so, you know, residents are saying things like, will ISPs be held accountable to high priority areas that have no Internet? Uh, What is being done to stop companies from becoming a monopoly due to the contracts that they make you sign to be able to use their services? um our current services does not match the amount of money we are spending and then another person flat out says there is a monopoly why don't we have an array of isps to choose from this is the kind of stuff that they're hearing and you know kudos to them for not only documenting this but making it public and and for you know folks in their state to see that this is a real issue and th- which is why they spend quite a bit of time kind of going over, you know, they spill some pretty good ink going over what that barrier is and how it affects and how it will affect how the bead funds are distributed and whether or not they'll be able to meet their goals.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I find the most interesting about this is the discussions you and I have had. We've talked about on the Connect This Show. We've talked about it in a bunch of places where um, uh, we feel like most of the money is going to go to these big companies because of the uh, I think this is something I lay fully at the feet of NTIA, which is this ridiculous and unnecessary letter of credit requirement, which is just super harmful. And NTIA refuses to remove for reasons that are beyond me. Like there's things where I disagree with an agency or a person, but I get where they're coming from. I do not get this at all. Like it is wild to me that they will not Changes. I thought that by now we would have two things that were done. One, I thought Congress would fix the taxation issue. Mm-hmm. That right now Congress is still planning on taxing these grants at twenty percent because of the Republican bill in twenty seventeen. I just want to be clear because like people always assume that taxes are going up as Democrats. It was Republicans who wanted to tax broadband uh, awards. Right? They changed the IRS language to to tax this stuff in twenty seventeen under the the Trump administration. That's and right. the uh, and then the other thing is this thing with the letter of credit. Like I thought that we would have these two things resolved and and nobody cares i mean like you know it's just not it's not being treated seriously
1: right and now of course there's the there's you know a group of coalitions of which we're a part of which i think in terms of asking the ntia to come up with some alternatives to the letter of credit which i think also shows that we're able to make the distinction between you know sort of the you know the big monopoly incumbents and the small community you know the small to mid-size isps that are really doing you know good work and why it's important that they're a part of this and the let and and as it stands and and some of these plans that i'm that that we're looking over the, these five-year action plans a number of them specifically point to the letter of credit as a concern um a- as it relates to you know smaller uh isps and their ability to participate in the program i mean that's a real concern i mean if you're if you've created a program that essentially squeezes out a lot of the smaller isps even in states that are encouraging public private partnerships I mean your options are dwindling quickly. I mean if you've got municipal barriers in place and you've got this letter of credit requirements and things like that, it really is pushing things in the direction of where where some of these states are are not going to have much of a choice but to hand over a lot of this money to yeah. the big incumbents.
0: Yeah, because what will happen is is like bigger companies that want this money they're going to find some way of adjusting their tax liability so that they're not getting that 20% hit on this, right? They're going to figure out some other way to offset that with something else somewhere else. And it's the small companies who don't have, you know, a division of tax attorneys who can't figure that out. And so we're going to end up in that spot where everyone in South Carolina at these public meetings is like basically saying, Hey, like let's fix this. Let's not just figure out the quickest and easiest way to get, a new company out there. Let's make sure we actually have good service that meets our needs, but that's not, that's not what the States and NTIA are setting up here. They're setting up to just like have a government funded expansion of big monopolies. And right. I think that's pretty ugly, but uh, you know, we'll be, you'll be talking about this in 10 years, Sean, you'll be yeah. like, yeah, I watched as they set this up. Like, you want to know why you have one service provider out here in rural South Carolina? Like, like is why yeah, like, we told a little them, story. We told them. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Some of the other things that um, seeing in the plans is in several of the master plans is this discretion. I believe that the states are taking in terms of so BEAD requires, of course, that you that you first take care of unserved areas, then underserved areas, etc. But there are a number of states who are explicitly saying in their plans as it relates to this question of is BEAD going to be enough to get them to universal coverage. You know, a number of states I've looked at said yes. They 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 feel like it'll be enough. Maine actually says nope, not quite. But we've thought about that, and we've got a plan in place as it relates to that. The thing that I'm starting to see is that um, a number of states are saying, "All right, we're gonna we're we're gonna take care of the unserved. We're going to do underserved. We're we're gonna do underserved. And then if there's any money left over, we're going to look to uh, connect uh, multi dwelling units." Um, low-income multi-dwelling units and other types of, you know, like apartment buildings and condos and things of that nature. And if memory serves, I believe I specifically might have even asked Alla Davidson, the the head of NTIA, this question at Mountain Connect, not the the, the most recent one, but the year prior um, about this. And I think he explicitly said that you don't have to like make the, the MDU's connectivity be the last thing. And so it feels to me that there are a number of states that are kind of saying, hey, maybe we'll eventually get there. If there's enough money, we'll eventually get there. So to me, that's fundamentally a, a, an equity issue. And I get it that most of the bead funding is geared towards rural America, but there are lots of urban and suburban areas that 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 could really use some of these funds. And there's some great, I think, gems in the infrastructure bill that allows even urban areas and such to use some funds to connect things like MDUs, except that some of these state broadband officers are are, are kind of taking the approach of we'll get to that last if we get to it at all.
0: Yeah, it's the lowest priority. And, and to, to be very clear for people, you're saying, you know, the MDUs, what we're talking about is low income apartment buildings. This is where, you know, like people working class and people who are, you know, like often struggling, they might be on government assistance programs. They might not be able to work. Uh, they might be retired. Um, you know, these are folks who um, who have been left behind. There are more of these people. Then there are people in rural areas who don't have infrastructure available. And once again, many states are saying we're going to maybe worry about you last. We don't really care that much about you. Uh, That is the explicit message and uh, is frustrating because NTIA, I think, was deliberately ambiguous in part because the statute was was somewhat ambiguous and could be read different ways. Uh, But it is clear that states could start putting money into these uh, very high poverty apartment buildings immediately if they wanted to. And we're talking about there. We're talking about like an improvement that might cost five hundred dollars per family served or per household. You know, it might be less. It might be a little bit more, but that's the range. And instead, they're going to they're basically saying like, oh, rather than doing that, we're going to we're going to make sure we serve all these households where it costs ten thousand dollars per household to fix up. And it's like okay, you and I are strong believers that we want to get internet access out to everyone, but there needs to be some balance there. And this is one That's of the right. things we're seeing in Los Angeles in particular with the state there where you have more people in Los Angeles who are like in this situation of like living in, you know, a small, uh, low-income apartment building and they, they're they not getting any assistance. And there's just like, there's more than a million of these people. And then across across the state, you've got another million people in the rural areas and the state is just basically, well, you got to worry about them first. Well, no, you don't have to. It is a policy decision that you are making, that once again, we are taking the low income families and we're putting them at the back of the line and saying, hey, we're going to get to you next. But we really know what that means is is we're never going to get to you. We don't care about your problems. You don't vote in high enough numbers. You don't give money to our campaigns. Our system is not prioritized to be responsive to you. And here's what it looks like.
1: Right. And I got to believe that there are some congressional offices and staffers who are probably pulling their hair out of their heads over this because in the sausage making of all this, of course, there's all these trade-offs that, that, that happen. but there were some people that I think worked hard to try to embed certain things yeah. in the infrastructure bill that allowed for things like this, despite, you know, the overall shape of, of, of it being sort of more geared towards connectivity challenges in, in the rural, in, in, rural areas that there was the, the, that there were these little, you know, what I call Easter eggs in there. And, and it feels like there's a number of States that are like, just leaving them there.
0: Yeah. No. And, and and to some extent, I think there's a little bit of, uh, of people may not be aware of it, but like we've, we've talked about it so many times. And like, I, you know, I think um, Pew and others have talked about it, like Benton, I'm sure has highlighted it, you know, like anyone who's paying attention, you have the opportunity to learn about it. All right. One last thing we got to, we got to cut this off in a minute, but uh, we got to talk about Pennsylvania for a second. Um, You know, Pennsylvania, uh, a friend of ours, uh, you know, someone we respect a lot was just like, Aghast at how bad the five year plan was from Pennsylvania uh, I haven't read the whole thing. I was just skimming through it, and I was a little bit surprised by a few things. um You noted one of them already, which is something you were talking about, which is like how does Pennsylvania deal with their They have this weird law from like 2003, 2004 that Verizon pushed through, uh, which is basically that a a community has to get permission from a private company offering telephone service in their area before they could build a network to improve Internet access. Remarkable. Just very on the nose, like exactly who's writing the checks here, you know, kind of. Absolutely. But so that barrier is still in effect.
1: And also like, yeah, a telephone company. I mean, it just feels like so 1995, but. But so, again, as we said, you know, initially, states are are supposed to be detailing these things. And so, curiously, in Pennsylvania's five-year action plan, in the actual section where they're supposed to be identifying obstacles and barriers, they don't even mention it. They do mention it in the plan elsewhere. You have to look for it.
0: Yeah. They have a section called Obstacles or Barriers, and they say barriers across Pennsylvania. This is what puzzled me. Did you notice this? One of the barriers that they're talking about is limited Internet options. (laughs) (laughs) so i mean it's a it's a remarkable thing to be like one of the reasons people don't have internet access is because they don't have the option for internet access oh really like thanks a lot like really insightful
1: right no exactly i mean actually in a lot of these plans like as i'm reading through i'm like i'm one of my most common like out out loud to myself remarks is like oh yeah you think so so literally the last par the last sentence of
0: this paragraph on limited internet options is I've read this like 10 times now, and I have to share this. These challenges also impact the ability to overbuild existing broadband networks in a cost effective manner. Now, if anyone can explain to me what that means, I would be interested. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, like overbuild is supposed to be like this like horribly negative r- word. I think whoever wrote this doesn't actually know what that word means, what the connotation of it is. Oh, right, right. But like like a problem with with having limited internet access is that like then nobody can overbuild. Well, yeah, like you can't overbuild something that's not there, I guess. Like I, <laughs> anyway, it's wild, like how, how much this looks like it was script. Some group got like more than a million dollars to do this. And I've just I think you and I should have done it in a weekend, man. We would be like we would have some good vacations later this No year. doubt, no
1: doubt. I will I will give their graphics people credit. I mean, the plan looks beautiful. They've got all these wonderful maps in there and colorful graphics and what have you, but it the, the thing that strikes me about pennsylvania is not only do they sort of breeze over the the that the, that barrier there's they don't ever really connect the dots even though the plan is littered with like evidence that's that that shows that pennsylvanians are screaming for competition and choice yeah i mean do the surveys that they, they they talk about the different surveys that they've done and the results and you know it's it's like when they asked residents who don't have home internet service why they didn't, the top three answers were, it costs too much, the service is unreliable, or I hate the service provider. Those were the top three answers that they heard all across the state. And so there's all these different uh, you know, elements, bits and pieces in the plan that kind of scream, hey, Pennsylvania, why don't you kind of help create the conditions to increase competition, et cetera, And they kind of just sort of breeze over that and say, yeah, we're going to go with, uh, you know, relying on the big incumbents and we're going to encourage public-private partnerships, although there's not a lot of detail as to how they're going to to do that. Because, again, like when we talk about the letter of credit stuff, I mean, it's one thing to say we're going to encourage public-private partnerships, but you can't force internet service providers to partner. And so – you can, you know, put some carrots in there, but what are those exactly? How are you going to like help them get over the the different concerns that they have to even want to enter into public private partnerships?
0: Yep. Well, we're out of time. uh went longer than uh, than I tried to. Once again, always so much to talk about with you, Sean. Thank you. I,
1: I do like to flap my gums.
0: <laughs> I love having you on here to, to talk about this stuff. I hope uh, I hope people enjoyed the show, and uh, I'll be seeing you later.
2: Okay. Take care. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community Nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Muni Networks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast.